Don't you just love spring when every plant is bursting with blossoms? This morning when I plunged my hands into the dirt in my back garden, I pulled up a healthy clump of worms. Another reliable sign of the season. The early bird catches the worms and... But hang on a second, things aren't quite as they appear. Those earthworms may seem like they've been around forever, but they actually disappeared from most of Canada during the ice ages more than 10,000 years ago. The worms you see clutched in the hands of toddlers across much of Canada and the northern United States these days turn out to be castaways. They arrived mixed in with the earth and stone ballast of the British, French, Spanish, Portuguese and Dutch ships that colonized the American continent. Worms spread so far that today we just simply assume they've always been here. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and you are listening to the second episode in Hakai Magazine's podcast series on ballast. Yep, ballast. Ballast profoundly shaped the world, and not just by inadvertently translocating worms. All that rock and earth and the animals and plants that were accidentally loaded with them into ships' hulls and then dumped in foreign lands bear witness to histories, histories that are hidden in plain sight. If you've ever been to New York City, chances are ballast shaped the ground you walked on. In stepping on New York, you're not stepping on New York. You might be stepping on I don't know, Jamaica. You might be stepping on Bristol. You might be stepping on Sweden, on Norway. So if you're in New York and you want to try to step on New York, to be on New York, you would have to go to the center of Inwood Park. That would be your best bet. Everything else is basically colonial. It's colonial earth. That's Maria Teresa Alves. She's an internationally acclaimed artist from Brazil. Ballast flora is a category that is no longer very much used in botanical knowledge, but it was very much part of botanical studies in the 19th to early 20th century. These days, Maria works with a medium few, if any other artists use, ballast flora. And it is um, botanists that became interested in all these weird plants uh, that were showing up in places that they weren't supposed to be. Um, and they were curious as to why these plants were there. The idea to grow ballast gardens began back in 2007, when Maria Teresa was commissioned and funded to grow a large-scale exhibition in Bristol, England. Here's a clip from a video about the Seeds of Change project, produced by the Arnofini Art Gallery. So up until the turn of this century, ships would use earth and stones, or anything that came to hand in the port of um, exit, if you like, Within that would be seeds. And the, the great discovery that Maria Teresa had was that these seeds that came with the ballast that was offloaded when ships came into port could lie dormant for hundreds of years. This is really amazing, because uh, if you think, all of our ports are kind of full of all of that history lying in the riverbanks. She started out by researching all the sites around the city where ballast would have been dumped 
Maria Theresa is using something as tiny and fragile as individual seeds unearthed from historic ballast sites to change the way we see the global impacts of colonization. She's a seed artist, germinating history. And to me, I'm very interested in um, the plants that grow from this because they are witnesses to histories that are not usually part of the history we know. To understand this history, Maria Theresa has worked with horticultural experts and local communities to research ballast flora in numerous port cities, including Marseille and Dunkirk in France, Reposari in Finland, Liverpool, Exeter, Topsham, and Bristol in the UK, and of course, New York. They've discovered that over the past two centuries, more than 400 species of plants, mostly of European origin, were growing on ballast grounds throughout New York and New Jersey. Sweet William, hollyhock, sweet clover, opium. I really love to cook, and as I cast my eye down the list of ballast plants that Nick Ray, the curator of the Botanical Garden in Bristol, sent me for Maria Theresa's Seeds of Change installation, I suddenly have the brilliant idea of creating the world's first ballast garden burgers. I'm hoping they have some sort of good story on the back of the bottle. Well, or... I know a bit about Ballast Point beer, and the reason I know about it is that every time I looked up anything for ballast, for ballast food, all that comes up is the yeah. Ballast Point beer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to? Cheers. And, but what I will like tell you. Way to, to start our yeah. ballast burgers. Mm. <laughs> to ballast. Oh my goodness, that okay. smells so good. And, you know, I had this idea that we would make ballast burgers, uh, ballast garden burgers, Ooh. only from ingredients that came as ballast plants. So plants that were brought from other places to Britain, okay. brought from other places to New York City. Well, I think the core of our ingredients, mm -hmm. and this one shocked me because when I think of Britain, all I ever think about is oat cakes and oat right. but <laughs> oats actually came from the Middle East. And they found their way originally as ballast. Really? Yeah. So oh, that one's oats. surprising. How much of a purist are you? Oh. We might need to add a bit of olive oil. Which... I will tell if you don't. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about like lettuce and tomato, all that sort no, of stuff? We do have a green, and that's kind of a fascinating one. It's rocket or arugula. Yeah. Arugula came in ballast? Arugula came in ballast. And it came from the Mediterranean. And then now for our seasoning, mm -hmm. um, we have cumin. Ooh, yeah. Or we also have figs. So figs came from Cyprus. And I've got some here. Ooh. Do you think we should just chop a few? Absolutely. Here, you want to give them that a chop great. and I throw them We have there. nothing to hold it together. Let's see. What will we use? Um, okay, what's sticky that can go in our ballast? <laughs> Maybe we do just have ballast salad. Should we just... Friend. Wow. Shall we give it a try? Yeah. Great. Cheers. Okay. Cheers, Ellen. Take your first bite. Ballast Ellen. Mmm. It's really good. That totally passes as real food. <laughs> well done. Well done, you. The final recipe for the ballast garden salad is one half cup oats from Northern Europe, one finely diced common fig from West Asia. One tablespoon flax from Eurasia, cultivated by humans since 9000 BC, lots of rocket from the Mediterranean, a sprinkling of dried hibiscus from Asia, 
and two teaspoons cumin from North Africa. It's fascinating to think that all these familiar ingredients first made it to our plates by mistake. Bits of plants and seeds trapped in the crush of rocks in ship's ballast. They sound so ordinary, but it's their places of origin that reveal a far darker story. Well, ballast was a part of the slave ships, and the ballast was actually taken from the That's Mats Burstrom. He's a Swedish archaeologist, and it was his book, Ballast Laden with History, that first got us thinking about making this podcast series. He tells me ballast was essential to the slave trade. When I ask him to take me to the best place in North America to see the most things made from ballast, he immediately mentions Savannah, Georgia. I've been to Savannah, Georgia. It's a beautiful place with horse-drawn carriages and cobbly streets and big rock buildings. But Mats quickly reminds me where all those rocks came from. Savannah is chock-a-block with ballast stones because of its role in the transatlantic slave trade. Slave ships from Britain left their ports carrying cloth and guns and ironwork and drink and other products manufactured in Britain. They sailed to the West African coast where they traded these goods or sold them in exchange for people men, women, and children who had been captured as slaves. The slaves endured horrific conditions as they journeyed from Africa to the West Indies. Tens of thousands died on ships during this middle passage across the ocean. Those who survived went on to work for nothing in deplorable conditions on plantations. The sugar, coffee, tobacco, and other produce from the plantations was then carried back to Britain to be sold. But as Maria tells me, this system of trade wasn't always followed. It wasn't as we were taught in school. I was taught that uh, manufactured goods in, in, in Britain were taken to Africa, exchanged for enslaved peoples that were taken to the Americas, that were then sold for colonial goods, shipped back to uh, Britain. But actually, it wasn't quite true. What was happening was that the enslaved people were being brought to the Americas, and the ships, if there was nothing ready, and or if there was, but you would have to wait as a ship captain, they did not. They just rushed back in ballast to Europe to begin the whole process again because the money made from enslaved people was four to six times more than colonial goods. In 2015, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture confirmed the discovery of the San Jose the first ever archaeological documentation of the wreckage of a slave ship that had been carrying people when it sank. Half of the more than 400 enslaved people from Mozambique aboard this Portuguese slave ship drowned when it sank near Cape Town, South Africa, in 1794. Those who managed to survive were resold. In the midst of the wreck, divers recovered more than 1,400 thick iron bars. They are ballast iron bars, 88 pounds each. Stephen Lupkeman, a social-cultural anthropologist, is studying these slave ships. It's part of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture's Slave Wrecks Project. As he says, Iron ballast was often used and carried in these ships, both as a trade item to trade for slaves, but also because there was a need to weight down the ship, because in some sense, human bodies were not heavy enough or were not as heavy as other types of cargo. Iron ballast bars are real, haunting evidence of the 400-year global commerce in slaves that transformed 12.5 million Africans into a commodity and shipped them like cargo to the Western Hemisphere in bondage. 
this podcast series, we've been focused on solid ballast. You know, rocks and rubble, that sort of thing. But for the past 140 years, ships have increasingly used water for ballast. When ships unload their cargo at a port, they take on vast amounts of seawater to maintain their stability, which has historically been dumped at the next destination. My name is Michael Gastner. I'm an assistant professor for mathematics, computer science, and statistics at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore. The United Nations states 80% of uh, world cargo is, is transported by ship. That's the latest number for 2017. Cargo ships now shift 11 billion tons of ballast water internationally each year. So I think it was 150 liters per minute. So about one bathtub per minute that arrives at the U.S. And the trouble is all those bathtubs full of water may include non-native organisms from faraway countries. About 30 years ago, a ship, likely from the Bay of Bengal, released ballast water containing a strain of cholera into coastal waters of Peru. The cholera contaminated shellfish, and when people ate the shellfish, the disease spread, killing 12,000 people across Latin America. We now have the capacity to unintentionally move more organisms every month in the ballast water of ships than we used to move in one century. It's estimated that 7,000 invasive species are carried around the world in ballast water every day. In New Scientist magazine, author Fred Pierce writes, That's how the European zebra mussel got into North America's Great Lakes, where billions of dollars were spent to keep it from blocking irrigation channels and water pipes. That is how the dinoflagellates that cause toxic red tides spread round the globe, how Chinese mitten crabs reached Europe, how Asian kelp made it to southern Australia, and how Mediterranean mussels came to carpet the coast of South Africa. To combat this problem, a UN agency responsible for the safety and security of international shipping brought the Ballast Water Management Convention into force in September 2017. It requires all ships involved in international traffic to manage their ballast water to a certain standard. And new ships must install onboard ballast water treatment systems. The global spread of invasive species via ballast reminds me of something Matt Spurstrom told me about how ballast shaped the wildlife we see in Canada today. Newfoundland is actually a part of North America that have... Uh, he says the reason for this is that all those plants and animals arrived in Canada as part of ballast. Animals, like the 19 different species of carabid beetles from Europe that now live in Newfoundland. Why did so many invasive species arrive in Canada's easternmost province? Well, it's all due to the cod. When John Cabot, a Venetian-born navigator sponsored by King Henry VII of England, cast his eyes across the huge stocks of cod off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, he kicked off a commercial fishery that would impact Europe for centuries to come. Codfish, so thick they stayed the progress of our ship. 
Your fleets will have no further need of Iceland. Fish is enough to feed this kingdom. Oh, sire. Until the end of time. Oh, Canada loves its heritage minutes. And in this case, that rousing crescendo feels pretty appropriate. The demand for dried or salt fish in Catholic countries of Europe was so great, it generated a massive seasonal fishery of hundreds of ships from France and Spain and Portugal, and later, mostly fishermen from the British Isles. All of this talk of fish has got me feeling peckish. I think I'll go back and finish that ballast garden salad with Kat. Oh, and I can't wait to see how she feels about one final ingredient. So we could be eating beetles because beetles, <laughs> a number of your Asian beetle beetles. Beetle ballast garden salad. <laughs> yes, beetle ballast garden salad would be perfect. And beetles, I was just reading the other day, I didn't know this, I knew people were increasingly eating beetles. And you know, more than 2 billion people on earth eat beetles or eat insects on a regular basis and often beetles. Mm -hmm. But now the big thing to do in New York City and LA in these really trendy bars is to pair your beer, like our beer, mm -hmm. uh, with a with an insect. Really? So, yeah, so it's like, you know, what's the best insects for this beer? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and beetles are often the choice. Really? Yeah. A little crunch with your beer? Yeah. Better than peanuts, I guess? Well, maybe. And with that culinary delight, I'm going to raise a glass in thanks to everyone on our support team today, including... Maria Teresa Alves, Mats Burstrom of Stockholm University, and Michael Gastner at Yale NUS College in Singapore. This episode of Ballast was produced by Katrina Pine and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our original theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Jude Isabella, Adrian Mason, Mark Garrison, David Garrison, and our fact checker, Megan Osmond-Jones. Check out hakaimagazine.com slash ballastpodcast for more on each episode. We are an endeavor of Hakai Magazine and are produced next to the sea in historic downtown Victoria, British Columbia. Tune into the next episode of the Ballast Podcast, where we take a deep dive with ballast and explore its uses in the natural world. <laughs> <laughs>